The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Two weeks to Election Day. If there is such a thing anymore, a quarter of likely voters have already voted. And there's no reason to stop voting just because Election Day comes and goes. Yesterday, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the Hey Whatever wing of the Supreme Court to permit Pennsylvania to count non-postmarked mail-in ballots up to three days after Election Day. It was a 4-4 decision because the ninth judge is tied up in Congress going through the solemn constitutional advice and consent process, which means being asked by Maisie Hironi about whether she's sexually assaulted anyone recently. So the 4-4 Supreme Court decision means the lower court decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court stands. The Pennsylvania General Assembly's law, law, remember that? The actual law states that to be counted, absentee and mail-in ballots, quote, must be received in the office of the County Board of Elections no later than 8 o'clock p.m. on the day of the primary or election, unquote. Which, to the non-legal mind, would seem clear enough. I mean, if the legislators... Legislators... There's a quaint term. If the legislators wanted to extend it to nine o'clock on election day or curtail it to four o'clock on election day, they could have done so, expressing thereby the will of the people's representatives. Uh, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has said, nah, 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 that uh, eight o'clock on uh, election night is all a bit vague for us. Uh, And uh, when you enact a law designating 8 p.m. on Election Day as the end of the election, we discern in the emanations of the penumbra a right to extend it to three days after Election Day, including mail-in ballots mailed after Election Day, unless you can absolutely prove they were mailed after Election Day by having eyewitnesses who heard the voter say on the morning of November the 4th, gee, are you sure Election Day was yesterday? I could have sworn they said November the 5th. Better get my Biden vote in this morning. Thank you, rock-ribbed Conservative Chief Justice Roberts. Vote, vote, vote. The only thing that is going to prevent chaos providing a cover for a coup is if you actually get out there in huge numbers and cast lawful votes, preferably on election day, just to keep the tradition alive. Uh, Looking at Robert's votes uh, since the Obamacare case, uh, people keep saying, oh, what do they have on this guy, Roberts? But come on. These days, I don't know what you would have to have to have something. Uh, In the normal course of events, for example, the Pennsylvania mail-in ballot decision uh, would be analysed on CNN and in The New Yorker by their chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. He's one of those boring blokes who's been on TV forever. Uh, There seems to be a lot of that on a lot of these American channels, but he's temporarily suspended for a while because he was doing a Zoom call and started masturbating during it. Yeah, who doesn't do that on Zoom? 
Uh, even relatively recently, whipping out the one-eyed muller and doing your five times a day prostrations uh, to an audience on Zoom would be guaranteed to self-detonate your career. If Rush did it, if Tucker did it, it still would be. But no one seriously thinks Jeffrey Tubin won't be back. Uh, in a couple of weeks. Look, I'm not unsympathetic. I mean, God knows if you've been doing CNN panel discussions for 30 years, it takes a toll. Excuse me while I whip this out. <laughs> not now, Jeffrey. Next, it'll be George Stephanopoulos. George! Don't do that. As I said, Jeffrey Tubin is also the New Yorker's legal analyst. So this is like the ultimate New Yorker caption competition. Here's a cartoon of Jeffrey getting out his penis on Zoom. What's the caption? Uh, all together now, gee, this Russian disinformation campaign is really getting out of hand. Until Jeffrey's penis reared its head, this Zoom event was a New Yorker public radio quote-unquote simulation of the post-election scenario, with varying eminences representing various interests. Jane Mayer played mainstream Republicans. Evan Osnos played Joe Biden. Dexter Filkin played the U.S. military. And uh, Jeffrey Tubin played his judicial branch. Uh, seriously, that's not a cheap joke. They're wargaming coup scenarios and you can see why that would get Jeffrey excited. Uh, am I going to talk about Jeffrey Tubin's penis for the rest of the show? Well, maybe. Uh, he shot me a condescending look. Not the penis, Jeffrey. Uh, at the corner of Vanderbilt and uh, 44th, I think it was, in Manhattan a year or two back. Uh, <laughs> it's all personal. But look, yesterday... The Biden campaign had only two events. Joe Biden went to an ice cream parlor and the media asked him what flavor he'd chosen. And Jeffrey Tubin zoomed out his penis and the media asked him what. Oh, never mind. I can't even be bothered doing the jokes about uh, extra sprinkles, nuts, whipped cream, a cherry on top. The point is this. Among the most prominent members of the Biden campaign, Jeffrey Tubin's penis has more public events than Joe Biden, has more visibility than Joe Biden. And unlike Joe after breakfast, you can't put a lid on Jeffrey Tubin's penis. The woke dictators of social media can label the New York Post tweets as fake news in nothing flat, uh, but can't get their act together to label uh, Jeffrey's penis as fake nudes. Uh, as long-time listeners know, I am not a fan of these stupid two-year presidential campaigns uh, because they take too much time in the dominant Western power, no longer the dominant global power. Uh, China's snaffled that away from us, in part because... We waste too much time on very parochial politics. Uh, and so these two-year campaigns take too much time out of discussing anything important, like the fact that Western civilization is sliding off the bloody cliff and most people in the West are not even aware of it. Go on, ask your neighbor. So having to pretend that Beto O'Rourke and... Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand are worth talking about just gets in the way of all that. Uh, if you don't have to do that, 
as the Chinese don't have to do, it frees up a lot of time uh, to focus on stuff that matters, like world domination. And when I first came to America, I used to say, hey, what's the deal with these uh, two-year elections? Because everywhere else I've ever been, elections are six weeks, 12 weeks max. And Americans used to say to me, Stein, you just don't get it. Those other loser countries don't get it. That two-year campaign beginning the day after the midterms, that tests a man or a woman or a non-cis woman, uh, stumping for months in the cornfields of Iowa, the snows of New Hampshire, tests a candidate, shows whether he's got what it takes, pressing the flesh in diners, having his views challenged by some guy chowing on a blooming onion at the county fair. So what happened this time? Basically, as soon as Biden wrapped up the nomination with South Carolina, he moved into his basement until November the 3rd. There's no campaign. There's no candidate. Nobody's pressing the flesh except Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, there are no issues. For Thursday's final debate, this week's Biden voter posing as an impartial moderator. Uh, I forget who it I forget who it is now. Um, but at any rate, whichever Biden voter is posing as an impartial moderator this week has selected for one of the six topics. Oh, go on. Take a wild guess. Yes. Climate change in 20 bloody 20 which is almost a parody of the Chinese curse about interesting times. Climate change. Oh, climate change was one of the six topics in the first debate. Climate change was one of the six topics in the vice presidential debate. Uh, but you can never get enough climate change. So climate change will be one of the six topics in the last joke debate. Nothing on immigration, a key issue with Trump's base, the key issue that got Trump elected. Nothing on China for Joe Biden, who's on the take from China. Adam Schiff says the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian election interference. Uh, the Bidens don't dispute the emails are genuine. People on the receiving end of those emails have authenticated them. Uh, Hunter gets to hold 20% of a Chinese company for himself with another 10% for the big guy. And the media pretend that somehow Putin managed to put all this onto a hard drive and get it dropped off in a Wilmington, Delaware computer repair shop. Uh, the guy who owns the repair shop, uh, fortunately, before he passed the laptop on to the FBI, took a copy of the hard drive, which is the only reason we know about this, because... Uh, he sent it to the FBI. That's the same FBI that a certain popular conservative host, oh, these guys, I've known these guys, the FBI, the, oh, there's a few rotten apples at the top, uh, but the whole of the FBI, wait, what the hell are you on about? It all go. It all went to the FBI, and the FBI basically stuck that laptop in the bottom of a filing cabinet and did nothing about it. Uh, actually, I'd like a, right now, I'd like, to support a candidate who says the rot at the FBI has gone too far and too deep and we actually need to abolish this agency and have a fresh start. I mean that. Enough of this. Enough of this. More penis? Okay. <laughs> if it's a choice 
Between the FBI and penises, I'll uh, stick with Jeffrey Tubin's penis. Why do lefty guys masturbate in front of women on Zoom calls? Why do lefty guys walk around naked in front of their interns at PBS? Why do lefty guys black up in front of women and ethnic minorities and sing the banana boat song, as Justin Trudeau likes to do. I think the reason's actually pretty simple. They don't believe in what they say, and they don't believe in what they do demand the rest of us sign on to. Now, we haven't signed on to that yet. In, in, in part of society, an ever-shrinking part of society, you're still free to think a lot of this uh, virtue signalling is a lot of nonsense, uh, and express truths that uh, are uh, that some people still uh, take to be self-evident. But you can't do that on the left. Uh, officially, in lefty world, you have to take all the nonsense seriously 24-7. And there is a stress uh, to living in a world of such obvious falsity. There always has been. Uh, they're not yet, aside from Harvey Weinstein, uh, up to the serial rape of Beria in the Soviet Union. Uh, but living in lies requires you to find some kind of outlet. Uh, and I think that's why <laughs> that's why you're you're plotting a coup. You're gaming out post-election coup scenarios. <laughs> with The New Yorker and public radio, and suddenly uh, poor old Jeffrey's hand starts wandering south of the border. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin's penis has the run of the planet. Elsewhere, Wales is in lockdown, Ireland is in lockdown, and my old friend Doris Johnson has banned persons living separately from having sexual congress if they live in Tier 2... <laughs> And tier three districts of the UK. Do you? <laughs> Tears on my pillow, pain in my heart. Uh, the bonking ban will be enforced, one assumes, with all the usual sensitivity of the Brit coppers. Uh, tier one couples are still permitted to make the beast with two backs, but getting to tier one. For anyone else in the United Kingdom is going to be difficult. What happens if, as in some fragrant Silver Age operetta by Lehar or Kalman, a tier one guy should chance to fall in love with a tier two girl? Oh, don't even think about it. Tier two girl, you can't be living in a tier one world. You'll have to zoom it just like Jeffrey does. Oh, never forget it. Forget it. I give up. A bat in Wuhan has led to a bonking ban in Britain. I didn't see that one coming. Jazz, Frank Sinatra, good old-fashioned rock and roll. Fill your ears with all sorts of music curated by Mark Stein himself at Stein Online. The music plays on at Stein Online through exclusive Mark Stein show performances. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. Biographies of great performers and songwriters, and Mark's On the Town audio specials. Are we really happy with this lonely game we play? Chuck Berry to Cole Porter, Ted Nugent to Johnny Mercer. New specials added regularly. 
Put some records on by heading over to www.steinonline.com music. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. The Doughboys Come Home, a Belgian on the bestseller list, and an American at the Kremlin Wall. It's October 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues in Constantinople. What remains of the Ottoman Empire has a new grand vizier. Well, actually, not that new. The former foreign minister, Ahmed Tefik Pasha, entered government almost half a century ago, 1872, and has held the post of grand vizier twice before. It is not clear how much of Turkey the government he heads actually controls. Some 350 miles away in Angora, there sits a grand national assembly controlled by Mustafa Kemal and the Turkish national movement that claims to be the only legitimate government in the country. But for the moment, Sultan Mehmed VI has a new Grand Vizier, albeit an old and familiar face. Lieutenant Mohammed Sharif al-Faruqi was once a Turkish army staff officer in Mosul, but he played a key role in the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire and was thought to have a bright future in the new Mesopotamia. Alas... He has been killed by bandits at the age of just 29. In one of the post-war world's many new nations, the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, the Ministerial Council has voted to declare the state a constitutional monarchy, with King Peter and the Royal House of Serbia as the reigning family. I'm going home, knock at the door, Two top Bolsheviks have got the home again blues. The German government has ordered the expulsion of the Russian delegates to the Hala conference. Grigory Zinoviev, chairman of the Communist International, gave an impressive four-hour speech in German to his audience, but he's homeward bound. So too is Solomon Lozovsky, head of the Red International Labour Union. Oh, I can't wait until I reach that gate and home I see. Your as fate, I know they're going to wait to welcome me. I want to say that that's the end of my misery. If I knew I'd ever feel so blue, I'd never roam. But it's true, you learn a thing or two away from home. I'm telling you, I seem to be a roll of a song. A sadder homecoming for thousands of American doughboys. Almost two years after the end of the World War, the Army transport ship, the USS Pocahontas, has returned from France with the remains of 2,185 soldiers 
who gave their lives for their country. I'm a going home, knock at the door, home, just like before, Rome, never no more, there's no place like home, oh, what a song, home, where I belong, oh, I got the home again blue. Will the Habsburgs be coming home to reign anew? The new Hungarian parliament opened its legislative session but adjourned almost immediately because of a violent debate between those members who favour restoration of the kingdom's former rulers, the House of Habsburg-Lorraine, and those who want a nationwide referendum to select a new king. In the United States, a new novel is causing quite a stir, Main Street, by an up-and-coming author called Sinclair Lewis. Main Street is set in a small town in Minnesota, and if its title conjures village greens and general stores, town meetings and ice cream socials, well, this book is intended to put an end to what its author evidently feels are smug and small-minded clichés about the picture-perfectness of American small-town life. Not your cup of tea? How about another brand-new book set in a quite different corner of country life, the American edition of The Mysterious Affair at Styles by a young British writer called Agatha Christie. The New York publisher describes the book as, quote, a very ingenious detective story introducing a new type of detective in the shape of a Belgian, one Hercule Poirot. A Belgian as the protagonist of an English detective thriller does not sound commercially very promising, but we shall see. In sports news, after a doubleheader at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, the Chicago American Giants are the first champions of Negro League baseball, having beaten the Bacharach Giants of Atlantic City, New Jersey. Chicago was the pennant winner of the new Midwest Negro National League, and Bacharach was the best coloured team in the East. I've got the blue, I've got the blue. I've got the alcoholic blue. No more beer, my heart could fear. Goodbye, whiskey. You used to make me pretty. So long, highball. So long, Jim. Oh, tell me when you're coming back again. Blue, I've got the blue. Since they amputated my boots Lordy, lordy, war is Well, you know, so I don't have to tell Oh, I've got the alcoholic blues Some blues No need to say goodbye, beer And feel free to let whiskey make you frisky British Columbia is the first Canadian province to reject national prohibition and to tell the alcoholic blues to push off. By a majority of more than 25,000 British Columbia voters opted to approve the sale of liquor under provincial regulation.
In London, thousands of unemployed men have staged an angry march on the Prime Minister's residence at 10 Downing Street. They were met in Whitehall Street and Richmond Terrace by mounted police who, quote, were compelled to draw their sword sticks and ride into the surging throng, causing a stampede into side streets that broke down many iron street railings. John Bull's other island is even less tranquil. And the former Labour Party leader, Arthur Henderson, introduced in the House of Commons a motion of censure over government policy in Ireland. It was defeated by 346 to 79. In the Emerald Isle itself, two months ago, 10 IRA prisoners in Cork jail began a hunger strike. Among them was Mick Fitzgerald an Irish Republican who last year led an attack on the Royal Irish Constabulary's Cork Barracks and later captured an army patrol in the Wesleyan Church at Fermoy. Mr Fitzgerald is now the first of those hunger strikers to starve himself to death. He was 38. Would that have happened in a prison run by Zebulon Brockway? Known as, quote, the father of prison reform, Mr Brockway advocated Christian moral education combined with manual labour as the most effective way of reforming the incarcerated. But an investigation into his Elmira reformatory in New York found that the charges of cruel, brutal, excessive, degrading and unusual punishment of the inmates were proven. Mr Brockway retired from his prison but remained popular enough in Elmira to be elected mayor five years later at the age of 77. Dead at the age of 93, Zebulon Brockway. Dead at the age of 32 is John Reed, journalist and a protean American Bolshevik, best known for his eyewitness account of the Russian Revolution, Ten Days That Shook the World. His last ten days surely shook him. Diagnosed with spotted typhus just as he was planning to return to the United States, Mr. Reed died in a Moscow hospital. He might have lived but there were no medicines available because of the Allied blockade of the Soviet Union. John Reed was given a hero's funeral and buried in the Kremlin Wall, the first American to be so honoured. And that's The Way of the World, October 1920. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Oh, uh, we have an excellent uh, letter from a newbie today, Anne Desideri. Uh, I hope I've I've pronounced that uh, right, Anne, because it is a most mellifluous name. Uh, Anne writes, uh, hi, Mr. Stein. Oh, you can call me Mark. I just called you, Anne. Uh, I'm a new member of your club. I enjoyed listening to The Prisoner of Zender. It was very different from the more modern versions and much better. That's Anthony Hope's excellent uh, original. And if you haven't yet heard it, it's one of our very early tales for our time. And it's a cracker. I thought you would appreciate this story about all the French people protesting together about the Muslim beheading 
in Paris. This is what you said in your IPA interview, that people have to stand together against the evil in the world to overcome it. I have a question. You said once that you were the last imperialist in the world, but don't you think that so many people, all the globalists, are trying to be imperialists today? What is the difference between a globalist and an imperialist? Thank you so much for all the information and good entertainment that you offer on your website. I look forward to listening every day, says uh, Anne. Well, uh, globalism isn't imperialism. It's a perversion, an inversion almost of imperialism, in which instead of exporting Athens and Rome and Shakespeare and Mozart and Magna Carta and due process uh, to distant uh, pinpricks on the map, we, the Western world, instead become the colony. And we uh, eventually wind up adopting the cultural mores of the new colonizers. For example, uh, 30 years ago, Western liberals defended Salman Rushdie's satanic verses because the idea that you can't say that was utterly abhorrent to free peoples, especially uh, fellow novelists and artists of Sir Salman and the like. Now, Western liberals say that you can't say that about everything. They've adopted the Ayatollah Khomeini strictures on all kinds of subjects, uh, from uh, transgenderism to climate change. Uh, to cancel someone by beheading him in the street is a mere difference of degree from cancelling someone by getting him fired or deplatformed or vaporising a lifetime's work over an unfortunate tweet, as has happened to Roseanne. So globalism and imperialism are precise opposites, and I'll expand on that uh, in a future show, Anne. Um, but I would like to say about uh, the French citizenry's reaction to the beheading of uh, Samuel Paty in the northern suburbs of Paris. Uh, I didn't appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad for you if you did, uh, if you are heartened by it. Uh, but as you know from my column yesterday, I wasn't, because it's not what I meant by that uh, IPA interview. I didn't really talk, as far as I recall, about people uh, standing together. Mo most of the things th that happen in the world aren't the result of large numbers of people standing together. They are, in fact, about very particular people standing up. Uh, I believe I said something about sharing the risk, which is quite different. Uh, Monsieur Patty was beheaded because he was a history teacher who was teaching a class on free speech, in the course of which he showed a Charlie Hebdo cartoon of Mohammed, or the Prophet Mohammed, as they always say on the BBC, just like they always say, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, right? Um, and he invited anyone likely to be offended by a cartoon of the Prophet Mohammed uh, to leave the room, such as observant Muslims. And because of that, other Muslims decided he had to have his head chopped off. So what would sharing the risk, which is what uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, and I have been talking about for years? Well, I explained it 15 years ago, 15 years ago, when the Danish Muhammad cartoons were published. Um, do I have any interest in publishing Muhammad cartoons in the ordinary course of events? No. 
But the minute savages start killing people over Muhammad cartoons, you're obligated to do two things. Uh, first, you have to show those cartoons in order to teach the savages that their strategy is doomed and they're going to get trapped in some Mohammedan version of the Barbara Streisand effect, uh, because those cartoons will be shown around the world and they're going to have to kill us all. Secondly, if you're a member of the media, you have a strong incentive to shut this thing down pronto because they're threatening your colleagues. That's why back in the old days, all the, uh, all the London literary lovies backed Salman Rushdie. Also, for a more basic reason, once people are getting killed over the cartoons, showing what they're getting killed over is part of the news story. That's why for 15 years at Stein Online, when we're talking about Charlie Hebdo or the Danish cartoons, uh, we show what we're talking about. Because not to do so is to grant Islam an exemption no other religion enjoys and to make us all, in effect, subject to Islamic law. So five years ago, uh, I gave a speech on the 10th anniversary of those cartoons. I gave a speech in the Danish parliament underneath that cartoon of Mohammed with a bomb as his turban. Am I brave? No. Do I want to die? No. But we'll all die. We're already dying if we accept that the strictures of Islam now apply to everyone. Uh, so what would sharing the risk look like here? Well, it would involve, for example, thousands of thousands of Samuel Petty's fellow teachers uh, being outraged by his murder. You're beheading our colleague for showing a cartoon. Screw off. We're all going to show that cartoon. That's the only support that matters. That's the only way you're going to stop this. Were any of those marchers in Paris with a candle in one hand and a teddy bear in the other saving a third hand to hold up the thing that actually got him killed? Look, I said all this with the uh, Je suis Charlie stuff. Give me a break. You're not Charlie. They're dead on the floor. And you think, as the lovely and ageless Helen Mirren did, that wearing a supportive brooch on your magnificent en bon point makes you shouly? No, it doesn't. That's too easy. Every, if everyone's shouly, no one's shouly. They died because they, they took it beyond stupid brooches. Five years ago, I quoted Andrew Stiles's summation of poser courage. Journalists, these French journalists are so brave. Readers, oh, what did they do? Can I see? Journalists, no, it's our policy not to show you. Yeah, you are shouty, all right. Oddly enough, even that mordant jest has apparently vanished from the internet. Uh, four years ago in France, Père Amel was decapitated during Mass in a Catholic church, and I went to his funeral at Rouen Cathedral because I happened to be in the neighbourhood. And it was one of those miserable rainy days in northwestern France that makes everything look so tastefully bleak. And I looked at the sea of umbrellas as I approached the cathedral on a narrow side street, and I knew the great teary torrent uh, was just an ostentatious externalization of the blurry 
generalized, vague grief. So we have expressions of solidarity that are in fact the opposite. Rituals that fill the void where real solidarity should be. Flowers, check. Teddy bears, check. A couple of choruses of Imagine, check. This week's hashtag, check. Um, Anne, uh, you mentioned, Anne, that uh, you like The Prisoner of Zender. And I'm very glad about that. I did an updated version called The Prisoner of Windsor uh, for Tales for Our Time this summer. And there's a Here Today, Forgotten Tomorrow Islamic attack in Geneva early on in, uh, in the book, mocking the prime ministerial staffers as they're trying to come up with a hashtag. Uh, and eventually the Ruritanian playing the British prime minister says, do we have to have a hashtag? And they all look at him as if he's mad. Hashtags, flowers, candlelight vigils. Tell the Allahu Akbar crowd, A, we can kill you with impunity, and B, we won't have to because you're already so anxious to submit. Stéphane Charbonnier, Charb, the great editor of Charlie Hebdo, said two years before he died, quote, It may seem pompous, but I'd rather die standing than live on my knees. Uh, these weepy, inert, passive demonstrations of so-called support are the very definition of living on your knees. Mark Stein's Last Call On our last, last call last Wednesday, I ended by wishing a belated 95th birthday to Herbert Kretzmer, lyricist of Les Miserables, and playing his mesmeric novelty hit for Honor Blackman and Patrick McNee, Kinky Boots, top five in the hit parade 1990. Uh, and almost as we posted the show, almost as soon as it was up, the news broke that Herbie had died in London. I have a lot more to say about him and a lot more of his songs as sung by Sophia Loren, Peter Sellers, Anne Hathaway, Bing Crosby, Elvis Costello and more over in our Song of the Week department. Herbie Kretzmer was a long-time reader of my columns at Stein Online, Music and Politics, and a listener and viewer of these shows almost to the end and very supportive when Carrie Katz and his crappy old CRTV cockwombles were trying to screw me over uh, a couple of years ago. I thank Herbie for that kindness and many others over the decades. Chicom 19 continues to claim some notable victims. Polycarpus Pujanto was an Indonesian pilot, officially, but he was quite a few other things too, not so officially, including supposedly an agent for the BIN, the Indonesian Intelligence Agency. And his extracurricular activities wound up getting him jailed for the murder of Indonesia's leading human rights activist. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Indonesia Highlights. A lawsuit filed against the East Jakarta State Administrative Court is challenging the conditional release of a former Garuda Indonesia pilot. The pilot, Polycarpus Budihari Perjanto, was jailed for poisoning human rights activist Munir Said Talib and failed to appear at the opening trial. Munir died on board a Garuda flight from Singapore to Amsterdam. The court found Polycarpus guilty of spiking Munir's drink with arsenic. Wait a minute, how does that happen? Well, in 2004, the BIN wanted the activist Munir Saeed Talib dead. So how to bring it about? Polycarpus, a pilot with Garuda Airlines, grabbed a seat on Munir's flight from Jakarta to Amsterdam via Singapore. If you fly at all regularly, you know how that works. When one of the airline's pilots or stewardesses is heading home, the company gives them a business class seat. So Polycarpus boards first, takes his business class seat and waits for Munir, a great hero to many Indonesians, to get on back in row 73 or wherever he is. And Polycarpus winds up offering his business class seat to Munir. The flight lands at Singapore and Polycarpus gets off the plane and flies back to Jakarta. The Garuda Airlines flight takes off to continue on to Amsterdam and shortly thereafter, Munir starts vomiting and comes down with diarrhoea, and a doctor on board is found to tend to him. But Munir Said Talib, executive director of Imparcial, the Indonesian human rights monitor, dies two hours before the plane lands at Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands. What happened? Well, the Dutch Forensic Institute found Munir's body contained a level of arsenic three times the lethal dose. How does that happen? Well, there's that nice chap who gave up his business class seat just as the friendly flight attendant was coming round with the complimentary orange juice. And that nice chap, Polycarpus Pujanto, allegedly slips the arsenic into the OJ and then takes a coach-class seat and waits for the plane to land at Singapore, where he gets off. He was acting on orders, supposedly, from Garuda Airlines chief executive Indra Setiawan, who was acting in turn on orders from Indonesian intelligence. Polycarpus was tried, convicted, jailed for 14 years and then released after nine over the objections of those demanding the truth about the conspiracy and justice for Munir. But sometimes there is no justice until the kiss of the Covid. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 59, pilot and poisoner, Polycarpus Budihari Pugento. In the golden age of Hollywood, Rhonda Fleming was never quite an A-list star, but she had her moments. In Out of the Past, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, The Great Lover with Bob Hope, Gunfight at the OK Corral, and eventually The Nude Bomb. Her heyday was the 40s and 50s, when she was called the Queen of Technicolor, because her fair features and red hair photographed so well under that process. Uh, personally, I'd say they photographed pretty well whatever system you were using, but we can't really demonstrate that in audio only. In Connecticut Yankee, she sang with Bing Crosby and acquitted herself respectably, so they asked her to make a few records. 
This is one I always liked. The song is by an art song composer, a classical composer, called Clara Edwards, born in 1880. She wrote the tune when she was 50 in 1930. And ten years later, Jack Lawrence, whose catalogue includes Beyond the Sea and Tenderly and Sinatra's All or Nothing at All, Jack Lawrence put a rather memorable lyric to it. Rhonda Fleming sings with the wind and the rain in your hair. Last night we met And I dream of you yet With the wind and the rain in your As we whispered goodnight With the wind and the rain in your hair Now it will be my favorite memory Standing there There in the mist How I sighed when we kissed With the wind and the rain in your head by Clara Edwards, words by Jack Lawrence, and a shimmering uh, arrangement, a uh, touch of the leaves blowing down the street you can hear in uh, that. Uh, that was uh, Frank Comstock and his orchestra, with the wind and the rain in your hair. Dead at the age of 97, screen siren, singer, and lifelong Republican, Rhonda Fleming. That will do it for today's show. See you on the telly tomorrow with Tucker. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
All rights reserved.